Today on Inland Journal and the Inland Journal podcast, ripples from the coronavirus are affecting every part of our lives. In this program, we'll hear worries about how the virus is affecting people in jails and prisons. How can prison authorities ensure inmates have the physical space they need to stay healthy? We'll also talk about the impending closing of a nonprofit legal clinic in Spokane that represents poor people. But first, we're a week out from the end of the Washington legislative session. It was the even-year session, which means it was short, only 60 days. But what a 60 days. Spokane Democratic Representative Marcus Riccelli starts on a long list of accomplishments. Um, we made progress on housing and homelessness, child care and health care. We made significant investments, $160 million for shelter needs and new affordable housing programs, $153 million to increase access to child care for working families. I have a whole list of really good bipartisan bills that passed. This is Richelli's colleague in the House, Spokane Republican Jenny Graham. The capital and transportation budgets, we were able to work on some other things as far as property taxes and also landlord-tenant issues. Um, There's been also legislation. One of them uh, creates a grant program for small rural school districts to modernize facilities. But one issue in the last few weeks demanded legislators' attention, COVID-19. Richelli says one byproduct of that is that it required lawmakers to reroute spending they had planned for other things. Well, I think there was an understanding that uh, our current budget, uh, which was a, a really great supplemental budget, that we had to pull back a little bit. And so that changed pretty quickly, understanding, and then um, also looking at uh, drawing from the uh, rainy day fund to uh, begin to combat uh, some of the issues we're seeing. So buckets for expenditures for Department of Health and local public health departments for testing, for hospital surge capacity and housing uh, became a priority. I think we did the responsible thing. We had a higher ending uh, ending fund balance than we had expected uh, because we believe there will be uh, significant costs to this and we uh, transferred the money from the budget stabilization account, which initially was 50 million, then was up to 100, and then very quickly was up to 200 million, which I think looking now will just be a um, a, a dent really in what we're gonna end up spending on this. As lawmakers turned their attention to addressing COVID-19, they had not only the ticking clock of the 60-day session in mind, but something else as well. In Olympia, the capital is a Petri dish. So, you know, there were definite concerns as far as, you know, we had some members that were at risk, uh, older or had some health issues, just like the general public. Um, And all of us have families at home that were uh, facing similar risks. All, you know, we have families that own businesses. And, you know, so we're not, we're not different than anybody else that is um, experiencing all of the things that this virus is is bringing out, whether it be medical concerns or economic concerns. We obviously, you know, keep an eye on, on the news. And when we started hearing about cases where, um, you know, individuals were getting sick and passing away, that's something that will for sure, you know, get get your attention. N- number one, there's the, the human loss that is associated 
with that. And of course, we're going to want to try to do everything we can to mitigate that and, you know, um, make it, you know, uh, make it so that we don't have as many people contracting this and, and, uh, you know, giving it to other people that could be, you know, you know, in uh, real trouble if they were to get infected by this disease. Richelli says the $200 million appropriated, about $75 million of which was distributed on Wednesday, covers a wide range of needs. There was a specific piece of it that was for uh, testing. Uh, and so, you know, we're doing a better job now. There's 15 labs testing samples from Washington State. We do have supply chain issues. Um, there's things like not enough swabs or viral transport. Um, there's a shortage of things in the labs as well. Obviously, uh, PPE, the uh, personal protection equipment, is in high demand uh, and it's an incredibly tight supply chain, and there's a very small number of supplies left. So, you know, we're doing things like putting in large state orders to vendors. Um, the strategic national stockpile that the president mentioned um, is slow in coming, but we're looking at all those things. We're working on things like hospital surge capacity, making smart moves like moving pediatric patients in uh, hospitals to and transferring them to children's hospitals where there is capacity. And then we're doing things that it was an issue before, but, you know, we have uh, some very complex patients in our hospitals that basically are there for long stays. And we're really working to discharge those patients and get them out of the hospitals. You know, we have a run on supplies and um, heaven forbid, you know, if we did have more people get sick, we've, we have got to be able to manage that. And a lot of our rural hospitals and, you know, clinics and that type of thing are struggling. Um, That was one of the things that I was paying attention to earlier is that they're not doing the elective surgeries right now because obviously they are paying attention to um, the limited supplies and the room, you know, that if they, if they need it, they need it to be there. But now the hospitals are not being able to perform those services, which is how they make their money. So there's so many moving parts to this that, you know, we are paying attention to, to try to see how do we mitigate this. Out of the house, I think, which led on the um, budget stabilization account transfer, um, you know, you need certain metrics uh, with votes required to tap into that rainy day fund. And so it was a bipartisan effort and it moved very quickly. And I think the response in the Senate was understanding because we sent over a bill initially that uh, was $100 million and that was amended from even $50 million to start. And it ended within 48 hours. We were up to $200 million, um, just understanding that the needs were surging. Do you anticipate there might be a special session later this year if, if more needs to be done? I think that that's uh, likely. I think that um, actually, I believe in the last couple of years, we passed some various continuity of government type deals. And one of the things is discussing, is there a possibility for a virtual session uh, if that's the best public health scenario, but action is needed. And so I'm awaiting uh, to kind of understand that going forward at this point, you know, I think uh, we're not there yet, but I think it's in the definite realm of possibility. There's a lot of issues that are going to need to be addressed. I am um, very proud of our region that we have been able to come together, city, county, state, federal, and 
talk about these issues so that everybody's on the same page um, on all of these issues that are coming up because that way we're working together. And the other part of this that, that has been so refreshing is when we pass that um, uh, the bill to uh, allocate the money for the coronavirus that, you know, this virus doesn't care if you're Republican or Democrat or, or you know, if you are political at all. Um, it doesn't discriminate. And I am so happy to see us being able to come together and do what we need to do to um, ease the uh, the effects of what this virus is visiting on us. One other benefit to all of this, says Marcus Riccelli, is that it reinforced the concept he supports to make sure Washington is more ready for the next outbreak. We increase funding for foundational public health, which to me, I hope we don't have to continue to have this conversation. I mentioned this today to a lot of our community leaders that I hope when we come out of this COVID crisis, we all understand that funding foundational public health should be a top priority, that it is our first line of defense, and that we have systematically defunded public health over the last years. And that is not a partisan issue. It's just a priority that we have lacked in. And I am laser focused on it. And I hope the community and I hope elected officials will come out of this COVID crisis understanding that we cannot turn our eyes away from the importance of funding foundational public health. Spokane Democratic State Representative Marcus Riccelli. We also heard from Spokane Republican Representative Jenny Graham. Public and private entities are minimizing or eliminating public access to their facilities to reduce the risk of spreading contagious diseases. MultiCare, for example, on Wednesday announced all visitors will be screened at its hospital and clinic entrances in Spokane. Someone will take your temperature, ask if you've had the symptoms of a flu or cold or other virus, or if you've been around someone who has had those symptoms. And if you don't have the right answers, you will be turned away. There are places where people don't have that ease of movement, the ability to find a place of refuge. They may be more susceptible to sickness. Those are jails and prisons. The Spokane County Jail has released several dozen low-level offenders to keep them out of harm's way. We weren't able to connect with the jail's director, Michael Sparber, to ask more about the measures that are taken there, but we did talk with Angel Tamio Sam. She's a bail disruptor for the Bail Project, which posts bail for some offenders who can't afford to post their own. The Bail Project and other social justice groups in Spokane have written local leaders urging them to do what they need to to prevent the spread of infection in the county jail. We know that, you know, our jails here in Spokane specifically um, tend to be really overcrowded. Um, and the nature of COVID-19, you know, it really does, it, it, it poses, it could be disastrous, you know. Um, the, the infection is, is spread by people in close proximity, you know. And so um, given that, you know, our jail is overcrowded, um, given that folks who are in the jail are already have a lot of health issues, you know, from coming right off the street and, and or being homeless. And, and then just the incredible turnover of folks being arrested, you know, and brought into the jail. And even if they're ushered out, you know, it really um, it's just a recipe for disaster. Um, we know that 
uh, folks with underlying health conditions um, can cause infection or exacerbate um, exacerbate issues. Um, and so, you know, we've been warned out here in the in the general public to, you know, avoid um, going into you know, public spaces, crowded spaces, that's just something that we're not doing right now. And so, you know, why not afford that same kind of care or that same kind of practice with people who are in the jail? The bail project suggests six actions to take. They include releasing people on their own recognizance when possible, including those who are charged with misdemeanors. They also include releasing the inmates who are the most fragile medically. And finally, the bail project argues the jail should do more to ensure those behind bars have the care and hygienic opportunities they need without having to buy their own materials. Normally, folks who are in jail, they um, have to spend money on, on you know, soap and, and shampoo and, and these things that, um, that, you know, should be made readily available to them. You know, and be taught and be told that, you know, this could, this, this is just an avenue to discourage, you know, the spread of any kind of infection. Angel Tommy O'Sam is a bail disruptor for the Bail Project in Spokane. Groups in the Portland area are also concerned about this. In the days after the governors of Oregon and Washington banned gatherings of more than 25 people as a way to limit the spread of the coronavirus. In the region's correctional facilities, those restrictions could be nearly impossible to enforce, as Conrad Wilson reports from Oregon Public Broadcasting. This week, the Washington County Sheriff received a letter from major civil rights and criminal defense organizations in Oregon. They said they had unconfirmed information a deputy working in the Washington County Jail may have contracted the COVID-19 disease. We are all as organizations really concerned that if coronavirus gets inside a facility, it could just sweep through the population like wildfire. Alice Lundell is with the Oregon Justice Resource Center, one of the groups that signed the letter. She says in many facilities, there just isn't space for social distancing. The practical reality in many places is that there just isn't the space to separate people enough to be effective in terms of preventing disease spread. Washington County says it's tested a few inmates but is still waiting on results. They did not say if a deputy had been tested as the letter inquires. The case illustrates the challenges the global pandemic poses for those who are incarcerated and those responsible for their care, a task that's extremely difficult in crowded jails and prisons. Dr. Christopher DiGiulio is the chief of medicine for the Oregon Department of Corrections. Last week, he acknowledged that it's simply a matter of time before an inmate contracts the virus. What we would do is absolutely make sure that we cohort those vulnerable patients together and separate them from the incident case as much as possible. Across Oregon, there are more than 20,000 people incarcerated in prisons and jails at any given time. And many of those are older and in poorer health. That puts them in a higher risk category for COVID-19. Many institutions have suspended visitors in an effort to keep COVID-19 from getting inside. Despite being secure, prisons and jails are not static populations. Lundell with the Oregon Justice Resource Center says not only do inmates come and go, but so do attorneys and corrections officers who work there. Any outbreak that happens uh, will likely not stay in the facilities. So there is a very real prospect that any outbreak in a prison or jail would also spread into the wider community around that facility. 
Some agencies across the Northwest are releasing inmates and trying to make fewer arrests that bring people into jail. On Monday, the Clark County Jail in Vancouver, Washington, released 45 inmates in part to reduce crowding over concerns surrounding COVID-19. The Washington County Jail in Oregon has released more than 120 inmates so far this week to create more room. Multnomah County Sheriff Mike Reese says the county's considering something similar. But we have to do it in a very thoughtful and uh, careful manner so that uh, we continue to maintain the safety of our community while we're in the uh, process of dealing with this pandemic. Criminal defense attorneys are also working to get as many people out of jail as possible before any potential cases show up. The risks extend to immigration detainees as well. Last week, Immigration and Customs Enforcement suspended all social visits at its detention facilities nationwide. Immigration advocates have already filed a lawsuit that could force ICE to release immigration detainees in the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma if they're considered high risk for contracting the virus. I I think it's just a complete scramble within there. Matt Adams is the legal director for the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project, one of the groups that filed the lawsuit. He says immigration attorneys are now separated by glass from their clients when they meet, but then everyone sits together on benches in court doing little to create social distance. So they say, oh, we're we're taking precautions, but the precautions are completely inconsistent and come up completely short. As law enforcement officials say they're prepared, the virus continues to spread. Many worry jails and prisons could become incubators that ultimately undercut efforts to flatten the curve on the outside. I'm Conrad Wilson in Portland. Spokane's Center for Justice is closing its doors next Tuesday. The center was founded more than 20 years ago by former Spokane County Public Defender Jim Sheehan to represent people who are treated wrongly by the legal system. It has offered help to people who can't afford private attorneys. Its profile was raised when the center's attorney represented the family of Otto Zim, a man who died in the custody of Spokane police during an arrest. Danan Penta is the executive director of the Center for Justice. When the center started, it was really focused on areas like housing, uh, employment, um, benefits, and things like that. And it really grew over the years. Uh, The center has practiced family law and helped uh, low-income folks in family law cases. Over the years, the programs of the center really expanded and grew. We have practiced a variety of different areas here at the center. We've uh, done a lot of things that have really changed the face of Spokane. Uh, We've done uh, land use law um, and challenged uh, challenged certain types of development that uh, that attorneys at the center thought were going haywire or were overreaching. Uh, We have done police accountability work. Um, we've done environmental law. Uh, that's, that's evidenced by our Spokane Riverkeeper program. And uh, we've just done a lot of different things over the years. Um, the center really evolved to focus on, on our current day programs, which have focused on uh, police accountability, uh, criminal justice reform, helping with, uh, with, uh, helping with expungements on criminal records. Uh, so in addition to that, we have a driver's relicensing program, helping people get their lives and their licenses back. 
And uh, we've also had a housing program in the past. Uh, before we announced the decision to close, we were operating uh, limited advice clinics three times a week over at the Spokane Resource Center, which is the Envision Center over on South Arthur Street. And we've just had a real wide variety of programs over the years. Um, of course, the center is best known for the Otto Zem case, a developmentally delayed man who was killed by the Spokane police. And the center represented Otto Zem in a wrongful death action against uh, the Spokane police and uh, governmental entities. And of course, that changed the face of Spokane in terms of uh, police practices, uh, the Otto Zem case brought about additional training requirements and educational requirements for officers. Uh, one of the, the biggest things that the Otto Zem case led to was the uh, Office of the Police Ombuds, Ombudsman, and uh, they take a look at, uh, at use of force cases, uh, situations where force was maybe unlawfully applied or was excessive. So that's a huge accomplishment of the center. Uh, we most recently took on the case of Clando Anatok, who was a Marshallese young man who was 25 and unarmed. Uh, he was shot by a Spokane County Sheriff's deputy. So we're still representing the family of Mr. Anatok. So why is the center closing? The center has struggled over the years to find sustainable funding. Uh, we've, of course, benefited from the tremendous contributions of Jim Sheehan, but uh, one funder just isn't enough to fund the uh, the immensely impactful work that we do here. Uh, since I, I've only been here at the center for a year, and uh, one of the things that we've benefited from in the past few years is really systemic of uh, the the challenges that face legal aid funding, civil legal aid funding. And I would say also the challenges that face nonprofits everywhere uh, in Spokane and uh, in, our, in our country as well. So where do, where do people go who have been using your services over the years? What are the options for them now after the center closes? The programs and services of the center will continue. We're actually kind of excited because I think this is an opportunity for the community to ask uh, how can we make sure that these important services continue? Uh, we are fortunate at the center to have excellent relationships with a variety of community partners. These are other nonprofits and social service agencies in the Spokane area. There are also community groups uh, like the NAACP. Uh, we've been participating in the Smart Justice Spokane Coalition of organizations that are really focused on criminal justice reform. So a lot of the work that we've been doing, especially around uh, criminal justice reform and policy work, um, police accountability, uh, that work is, has, has already been ongoing, and there are a lot of community advocates who are uh, doing this work. We are working with those organizations and groups, and we're looking at uh, what, other, uh, what other groups are doing this work and how we might bolster their efforts down the road. Uh, the center, as it exists, right now will cease to exist, but we know that the work that the center has done will endure through those organizations. And there will, other be, there will certainly be other nonprofits uh, that, will, that will, I think, bloom and blossom anew, uh, that will uh, open up to hopefully fill the void that's, that people feel is left. Danan Penta is the executive director of the Center for Justice in Spokane. It's closing its doors on March 24th. 
That's it for this week's Inland Journal. The program airs every Thursday on Spokane Public Radio. The podcast is available anytime at spokanepublicradio.org. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, NPR One, or Google Play. Check in on your neighbor, be safe, and thanks for joining us. I'm Doug Nadvornik.